This podcast may contain explicit language and feel free to use explicit language when you review the gist on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. It is Tuesday, August 27th from Slate. This is the gist. I'm Katie Herzog sitting in for Mike Pesca, who I can only hope is relaxing on a beach somewhere with a drink in one hand and his cell phone in the other. If you've never heard of me, and let's be real, you probably haven't, I'm a staff writer at The Stranger, Seattle's best and only alt-weekly, where I cover news, politics, culture, and whatever happens to be annoying me at the moment. And what happens to be annoying me at this moment, and most moments, is public shaming. Public shaming was once written into the legal code. In the early American colonies, people were quite literally put in stocks in the town square. Even executions were held in public. As if being hanged weren't bad enough, you had to do it in front of an audience. Since then, public shaming has largely gone out of favor in the U.S. criminal justice system. This isn't because it doesn't work, but because it's now considered just too cruel. Still, it pops up from time to time. In 1999, a woman in North Carolina who killed someone during a drunk driving accident was ordered by a judge to walk around wearing a sign reading, I am a convicted drunk driver, and as a result, I took a life. In a different case... The same judge ordered a man to wear a sign reading, I am a twice convicted sex offender, around his neck. The judge, it seemed, had a type. But sentences like this are now quite rare, and that's probably a good thing. Outside the legal system, however, public shaming is everywhere. From grocery stores that display the names of people who've written bad checks to newspapers that display mugshots, photos that are seemingly designed to make everyone in them appear guilty, especially if the perp smiles. But that's old-school public shaming. Where public shaming really thrives is online. There, it's back with a vengeance, and it's having a remarkable effect on the culture. It's changing the media we consume and the products we buy and the people we tolerate and how we conduct ourselves in public. It's reframing how we view history, and unfortunately for history, there's no statute of limitations when it comes to public shaming. Ideas and actions that were fine just a year or a decade or five decades ago are now analyzed by the standards of the moment, and very little can survive this retroactive interrogation. Everything in this world is problematic. We call this trend cancel culture. And Twitter, my old frenemy, is ground zero for cancel culture campaigns. Some actual or perceived offense blows up, and the offender is mobbed by thousands of strangers, some of whom are probably genuinely angry, and some of whom probably just enjoy the sight of a good bloodbath. You know what I'm talking about. You've probably seen it. Oddly, these campaigns are often perpetuated in the name of social justice. For instance, the cancellation of Kevin Hart after decade-old homophobic tweets ended his chance to host the Oscars this year. That case is pretty clear-cut. The tweets were right there. He wrote them. But just as often, the allegations are more a product of misinformation and rumor than genuine wrongdoing. There was, for instance, the case of a cafe owner who was falsely accused of being a Nazi apologist after a man ate at her cafe wearing a German Air Force shirt. A patron called this out online, and people flooded the company's Yelp and Facebook pages with negative reviews, seemingly unaware that the business was named in honor of the owner's grandmother's escape from the Nazis in Poland. This happens all the time, and the story can shift instantly. Earlier this summer, A receptionist at a hotel in Texas posted a video of himself refusing to serve a white woman who called him a racial slur. The video quickly went viral. BuzzFeed posted an article lauding the man in the hotel for supporting him. But then, only hours later, the post was updated with a note because, it turned out, the hero had a history of posting transphobic things on Twitter himself. His hero status only lasted a matter of hours before he, too, was canceled. 
The roots of these public callouts are actually quite utopian. So-called callouts started in activist circles, where people don't necessarily trust the justice systems. Callouts were seen as a means to restorative rather than punitive justice. The idea was less punishment than it was healing. But then came social media, and call-out culture spread like a particularly itchy infection. Of course, while online pylons start on social media, they don't just remain there. Largely, I suspect, due to the amount of time people who work in the media spend online, these stories quickly get picked up by the media, which then spreads them far beyond the initial kerfuffle. Perhaps ironically, the media falls victim to cancel culture almost as often as it spreads it. Media organizations across the political spectrum have yanked stories voicing unpopular opinions, memory-holding articles with error pages as though they've never existed. Orwell's dystopia came from the top down. In his nightmare, it was Big Brother doing the censoring. Today, it comes from the bottom up, with Twitter instigating a mob and the media doing its bidding. This isn't being forced upon us. We choose it. I will admit to some personal interest here. I was canceled a couple of years ago after writing an article for The Stranger on Detransition, which is when someone transitions from one gender to another and then transitions back. The article, which I personally thought was rather balanced, did not go over well, and I was inundated with anger and hate. That was weird. But even weirder was that it's been two years and it hasn't really stopped. Right now, there are stickers posted all around Seattle calling me transphobic. There are multiple editions, actually. Someone paid to have them printed up. It's not how I personally like to spend my money, but I suppose everyone needs a hobby. Today on The Spiel, we're talking about something else that annoys me, Portland, Oregon, and the political theater that plays out there every couple of weeks between the right-wing Proud Boys and the left-wing anti-fascists. That's coming up, but first, I'm going to be talking with the director of the newly released and very controversial film, Adam, about what happens when cancel culture comes for your life's work. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where uh, it got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
And now we're here with Reese Ernst, the director of the new film, Adam, which has been the subject of much controversy even before it was released. Hello, Reese. Hello. First off, why don't you describe this movie, Adam, for us? What is it about? Yeah, so Adam is um, a movie that I just directed that takes place in 2006, and it's uh, about a kind of hapless 17-year-old boy who's living at home with his parents and has one more year of high school left but goes to live with his older sister in New York for a summer and is following her and her friends around. And um, his older sister's a lesbian and sort of in the kind of hipster, queer, lesbian scene in Bushwick in 2006. And he's kind of trying to keep up with their conversations and doesn't really know exactly what they're talking about but thinks they're pretty cool and is just trying to, you know, fit in. And before he realizes it, he gets mistaken as a trans guy and doesn't even totally realize what that means um, until it's too late. And he ends up meeting a girl that he really hits it off with. And she is like, so, you know, here's my number. But just so you know, I've never dated a trans guy before. And before he kind of has a, the chance to correct her, she leaves. So he kind of finds himself caught in this lie and is trying desperately to get out of it. And failing. <laughs> so yeah. it's kind of, uh, it's playing with the mistaken identity sort of story that we've seen before and things like from Twelfth Night to Tootsie, but inverting it and making it, kind of putting it through a queer lens and making the cisgender straight guy the outsider. Yeah, totally. I, what I love about it is that you really captured, the, you captured 2006 queer land really well. Um, it might not be something that everybody recognizes, but for those of us who lived in this world, there's all of these small moments like, Elward watching parties, which was totally a thing that we did back then because nobody had showtime, so you would all get your friends together and watch the Elward together. Or, for instance, calling cis men bio men, something that is today we would consider very offensive, but was actually really what people said then. So I'm curious, did, does the movie, does it reflect your personal experience growing up in that world? Yeah, it very much does. I um, So I didn't have a lot of familiarity with the project before I received the script. Um, it was based on a book that I had not read. And uh, so I had just received the script and re was just kind of reading that at face value. And that said, I, I kind of, you know, had apprehensions just based on the premise alone. I sort of thought to myself, I mean, God, is this going to be offensive? How is this going to be handled? So I was kind of nervous even just kind of opening to page one um, as to how it was going to be dealt with. And then um, when I read through not only was I really surprised that it was real, actually really subversive and um, taking on so many uh, really meaty, interesting ideas, uh, I was also surprised by the fact that it um, featured these spaces that I'd spent a lot of time in in my in my kind of um, years coming up. Like I li actually lived in Bushwick in 2006 and was part of the queer um trans lesbian community. I was sort of in, in all those spaces. So I really recognized the worlds. I really recognized the characters. I really recognized the language, which exactly like you said, is, is kind of horrifically outdated in, in, um, in ways. And, um, you know, it's interesting to tell a period piece at this point, like in queer years, I feel like queer years are dog years and they, you know, are mm -hmm. seven each or something like that, because the, the changes between now and 20, 2006 are kind of astonishing. And um, I think a, a younger audience who um, maybe wasn't a part of the scene in 2006 will find some of this stuff unrecognizable and almost kind of shocking. Um, but that's kind of the point to, to tell, to look back at this history and, and to show it and not run from it. So I want to talk about the backlash, but first tell me what the reaction has been from audiences in person uh, when you've been to screenings. Yeah, so there's been this very interesting, very 2019 thing that's been happening, which 
is like I feel like I'm living in two disparate realities because every time I've screened the movie with an audience, which has been well over a dozen times, maybe maybe a dozen and a half times at this point, the audience reaction is really positive. And, and I'm talking about from mixed audiences, from 70-something heterosexual couples to um, young non-binary teenagers, there's been a really uh, generally very positive, very warm, enthusiastic response from audiences who have seen the movie. And online, from people who have not seen it, there's a very different response happening, which is that people are kind of, I think, afraid of what might actually happen in the in the story and there's some misinformation unfortunately being passed around um, about what actually may or may not happen in the movie and that's just sort of a 2019 thing that we you know we're all dealing with culturally there's like there's these different realities the internet is one reality um, you know it's really easy for for things to be passed around on Twitter that are maybe not 100% true. So there's a lot of confusion out there. And I think that it's, you know, on one hand, it's kind of this cultural zeitgeist moment that we're living in. And then on the other hand, you have this reality, which is that trans people have been so poorly represented on screen for so, so long that they're also appropriately cautious, you know? So there's kind of like multiple things at play. And there's a lot to talk about in the movie. And I'm sure it's going to spark a lot of interesting conversations. And, you know, not everybody's going to like the movie equally. Like some people will love it and some people will be less less enthusiastic or dislike it. And that's totally fine and totally normal. But, you know, it has been skewing really, really positive from people who actually go to the theater. So I think that's important to actually see, you know, this work in question to then therefore discuss it. So you're a trans guy. You've spent your career working to uh, make Hollywood a better, more welcoming, more available place for trans people. And now you're being called transphobic um, by people who don't know you and who don't know your work and who haven't seen the film. So emotionally, what is that like and how do you deal with that? It's It's been a really weird time for me personally, but I, I think... I think I, everybody I talk to feels like in their own, their own personal realities that have nothing to do with necessarily what I'm going through right now. I feel like everybody's having a really weird time right now and feels really distressed and um, like just, you know, the temperature's on really high um, in every direction. So it's hard for me to sort of separate that from the larger cultural thing that's happening. But yeah, personally, it sucks for me. Uh, it's, been a, it's been a bummer. It's been frustrating um, and upsetting. I don't know. I personally don't really feel like cancel culture in this example, and and I'm sure there's other examples too. But I don't really feel that it is it is working in in the direction of overall social justice. I know that there that it seems like it is. It's almost like let me just give an example really quick. I feel like we're in sort of a culture war, obviously, right now in many ways, and there's kind of like a fog of culture war. There's, we're in the fog of war, and it's hard to separate the sort of friendlies and the friendly fire from the actual enemy right now. And I think that that's kind of, to me, that's sort of like, feels like an apt metaphor for sort of what's going on with this let's cancel Adam moment. Um, and I totally get why there's a confusion and there's been a misdirect that's kind of led to this moment. I have empathy for like why this is happening, you know, but I think I think it's all going to come out in the wash. And like in six months or even sooner, there's going to be a totally different kind of, you know, look backwards on on this moment and what it was all about. And I think that people, once they actually start to see the movie, we'll see that there's actually nothing really to fear. And that said, not everybody will like it. A lot of people will like it. And all that complexity is fine. 
but I think it's there's not really like the the scary transphobic you know monster in the movie is not actually in the movie you know and I don't think anybody can actually watch it and feel like it was transphobic they might have different issues with it but I don't think anybody will see this movie and walk away thinking that it was transphobic I just I really don't believe that that is going to be the outcome so because so much of the criticism from you is coming from ostensibly queer people has this changed your sort of feeling about the queer community at all something that you've been a part of for a very long time well one thing I want to say is that I think that it is coming from the queer community and the trans community, or it's parts of the, the queer and trans community, but I also think the backlash is coming from um, a lot of allies, too, mm-hmm. who are kind of recent additions to the the conversation. And I have noticed this, like, I can, because you can tell when you're looking at, at some folks' profiles. And what's interesting to me about that is the movie actually kind of deals with this question of, you know, when allies go too far and take up too much space in in the conversation, which I actually think it's funny because it's kind of happening in a meta way and the conversation around the movie. But, you know, in the year 2019, when we've had Stonewall 50, and it's kind of the biggest, I don't know, the biggest like public exercise of pride, quote unquote, that we've ever seen before. What does it mean when allies show up and kind of you know, sort of claim it for themselves. Or, you know, if you take somebody to, you know, your straight friends of pride and they're like, yeah, this is for me, this is for everybody. Is it for them and for everybody? I mean, I'm not really sure what the answer is. And I think it's not black and white. I think it's complicated. But I I just did, I wanted to kind of point that out because I think it's kind of an interesting phenomenon that's happening that also is mirrored in the film. But in terms of, you know, how I'm viewing the queer and trans community, I mean, the queer and trans community is obviously not a monolith and is so... Um, so diverse in terms of, you know, in every imaginable way, including thinking and political affiliation and blah, 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 blah. So it's kind of hard to, you know, point at one thing. But I am noticing a, a sort of a generational divide that's that's ah. happening right now. And um, queers and trans people who are, I don't know, came of age... Er, not came of age, but came out perhaps like before the trans tipping point, I think are having a really different reaction to the idea of the movie than people who have come out since the trans tipping point. Yeah, absolutely. That generational divide. It doesn't surprise me at all because people who were older were there. I mean, you saw, you know, the cultural markers that you include in the movie are very real and they might be offensive now, but they were very real. They're very true to life. Yeah. I mean, one that keeps on coming up to me that I have found really interesting and and kind of surprising, actually, that this has generated so much response is that there's a lot of folks on the Internet, young folks, young queer and trans folks who have really pointed at the fact that the movie depicts a lesbian dating a trans guy and says, well, that would never happen. And it's inherently transphobic, you know, because it would suggest that a trans guy isn't a real guy. And I've been really scratching my head over that one because um, so I'm a trans guy I used to date lesbians. I came up through the lesbian scene. You know, if you were around in the mid 2000s or, or before, um, you know that that lesbians dating trans guys was incredibly common. Like that was practically the norm or the default, you know? <laughs> and it's like kind of, it's actually like kind of amazing that that, that particular issue has generated such a, uh, you know, a sort of a blowback from people who, who are just, who are shocked that that could ever happen. So that that's a huge, like that's a really good example of a generational disconnect that I, I've been really almost like, you know, surprised by to to how dramatic a disconnected in fact is. Do you think there's any upside to this, upside to sort of this 
being canceled the online at least uh you know metaphorically not literally thankfully um this sort of the movie is getting a lot of press in no small part probably because of the backlash so do you think that there can be this upside to um to being canceled I mean, yeah, I, I guess I, I guess so. I, I, I honestly would never have sort of like chosen this path for myself for the movie. But now that it's happened, I kind of do feel like it's all for a reason and all kind of cosmic and all sort of had to happen this way. And I believe that this is leading towards some like kind of unexpected like examples of social change of people questioning sort of Internet thinking or black and white thinking. And, you know, I, there's this conversation around the movie is actually really, I think, important. And the the question of cancel culture or the question of internet sort of half-truth, you know, information campaigns, um, all that stuff is really resonant right now. And yeah, uh, there has been a lot more attention on the movie perhaps than what would have happened if this, if it hadn't been called out on the internet. So, I mean, I, I didn't wish that upon it, but, you know, I mean, here we are and people are talking about it. And now there's kind of a thing of, well, you've got to see it for yourself to to have an informed opinion, you know? And I don't know, we're still in the middle of the story of, of what happens with this movie. And I wish I could skip to the end and find out what happens. I have that impulse every day. I'm like, I really want to know what happens. Like, what will the story of this movie be in six months? What will the story of this movie be in a year and a half or five years? Like, it's really, it's clearly going to be different than it is right now. I mean, I'm aware of that kind of the history of like, you know, of how representation works on screen. And I'm kind of pushing, trying to push us a little bit into the next step of trans representation, which is going to be much more messy, complicated depictions. Right now we're in the affirmational phase because we had such negative stuff for so, so, so long. So right now we're in the affirmational chapter of uh, trans representation, which is great and important, but I'm also really excited for the next chapter, which is going to be the more complicated, messy uh, representation chapter, you know, by trans filmmakers, hopefully, knock on wood. But that's, that's the goal. That's the way this stuff evolves. So... Um, you know, I think the story of Adam will change over time. And um, I mean, it's I feel like we're just still in the very beginning. We're in the middle of the beginning or something like that. So we still have a lot a long ways to go in terms of sort of looking backwards at the, you know, the legacy of this and knowing what it all means. Well, Reese, thank you so much. Uh, I hope that people see the movie. It is quite enjoyable, um, and it's better when you actually watch it first rather than just lie about it online. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Now, the spiel. I live on an island. Well, technically it's a peninsula, but I commute to work on a ferry, so it might as well be an island. There's a lot of water. Anyway, I was on the ferry last week going to work and minding my own business, and by that, I mean watching other people mind their own business. And there were two boys sitting in a booth not far from me. Everyone under 30 looks the same to me, so I'm not really sure how old they were. But if I had to guess, I would say they were old enough to tie their own shoes, but not old enough to jewel. There didn't seem to be a parent in the immediate vicinity. So it was, of course, a perfect opportunity for the older boy to start picking on his little brother, who was watching some kind of video on his iPad. I couldn't see what it was, but it was probably something like Paw Patrol or Alex Jones, something like that. Anyway, whatever the kid was watching, his brother kept flicking his earbuds out of his ears. At first, the little brother just told him to stop and put the earbuds back in, but his brother kept doing it, and after three or four times, the little one turned and just walloped the big one right in the bicep. And he did it at the exact moment that his dad walked up to the booth. That's what the dad saw. 
He didn't see that the big brother started the whole thing. He just saw the punch. And so he immediately grabbed the iPad away from the younger brother and said, that's it. No more iPad. The little brother started protesting and saying the big brother started it. And meanwhile, the big brother, he quickly recovered from his injury, and he asked if he could use the iPad instead. His dad gave it to him and told them both to shut up. I was reminded of this scene while watching events unfold earlier this month in Portland, Oregon, where, once again, the pro-Trump, pro-Western values drinking club known as the Proud Boys descended on one of America's most liberal cities to make a point about free speech, leftist intolerance, and, as an added bonus, to annoy the shit out of the left. This particular rally, it's the latest in a long string of them, was organized by an alt-right guy from Florida. And why would someone organize a political rally 3,000 miles from home in one of the most liberal cities in America, a place where you're more likely to see a clown on a double-decker bike than a man in a MAGA hat? Marketing, baby! The national news isn't going to send someone to cover a pro-Trump rally in pro-Trump country, at least not unless the president is there to lead the crowd in a chorus of lock her up. Besides, I'm guessing there is very little Antifa in, say, Winston, Alabama, a city Trump won by over 90%, and the real upside to demonstrating in Portland is that Portland is where Antifa goes to retire. Provoking Antifa into violence isn't the bug, it's the feature. And this plays out the same way over and over again. The Proud Boys announce a rally, Antifa shows up to counter-protest and maybe bash a few Starbucks windows in the process, a few people get hurt, a few more get arrested, and the media swarms upon Portland as though this is a big national story and not some regularly scheduled political theater by two groups of people who have somehow confused 2019 with 1930s Berlin. It's almost funny at this point, or at least it would be if there weren't real consequences to this revolutionary cosplay in Portland. And I'm not talking about the skulls that get bashed and the Starbucks windows that get broken. One side is harmed in all this, and it is not the Proud Boys, just like it wasn't the kid who provoked his little brother into hitting him. It's not Donald Trump who gets hurt either, because even if the anti-fascists have the more sympathetic political position here, and I think that they do, Antifa's tactics look a whole lot like fascism from the outside. And if you want to actually build a political coalition, one that could, say, rally voters to get Donald Trump out of office in 2020, the absolute least effective way to do it is to use violence. You know who realized this? Richard Nixon who reacted to the news that college campuses were expected to erupt into violence in the spring of 1969 by saying, good. I just learned this particular fun fact, by the way, from the book Panic Attack by Reason Magazine's Robbie Suave, which I highly recommend checking out. Anyway, Nixon knew what Antifa did not. Violence is not an effective way to affect political change. This has been demonstrated over and over by political scientists who have found that nonviolent movements are more likely to succeed than violent ones. There's an obvious reason for this. Violence turns people off. Nonviolence is just more inviting to building mass coalitions. The political scientists Maria Stephen and Erica Chenoweth studied over a century of political movements, and they found that nonviolent movements were over twice as likely to succeed as violent ones. And violence isn't just less effective. It's also more likely to result in government crackdowns of civil liberties. You see this happening right now in Portland where city leaders are advocating for unmasking laws that would prevent people from covering their faces at public rallies. And sure, anti-masking laws might seem righteous when it comes to Antifa or the Proud Boys or the KKK, but it won't stop there. In Michigan, 13 activists were arrested at a demonstration for improving air quality for wearing Lone Ranger masks. So these laws might be enacted to crack down on Antifa or the Proud Boys or whoever, but they will be used to crack down on everyone else. 
The reality is, the far right has killed far more people and wreaked far more havoc in both distant and recent history than Antifa, but you would not know that from Fox News, which milks these little skirmishes for all they are worth. Violence benefits parties in power, which is why it's a little ironic that Antifa is supposed to be an anarchist movement. All they are doing is benefiting their opposition, as well as the state. Still, I get the impulse. A racist oligarch who lost the popular election is in the White House. There are white nationalists marching in the streets. Shit looks bad, and we all want to be on the right side of history, or maybe the right side of history. Plus, it's fun to ride in the streets. Normally, people only do that after a city's basketball team wins the big championship, but since that's never going to happen in Portland, there's always the big Proud Boy meetup instead. But still, what is the point of all this? The one person it benefits the most is Donald Trump, who uses the actions of a small but dramatic group of people to paint the entire left as bullies and thugs. He has now used his official White House bullhorn, a.k.a. Twitter, to declare that Antifa should be designated an official terrorist organization, something that Ted Cruz is already working on doing. After Antifa beat journalist Andy Ngo at a similar rally in Portland earlier this summer, Cruz sponsored a non-binding resolution in the Senate to label Antifa a domestic terrorist organization, prosecutable under the RICO Act as though they are some sort of crime family. This shows just how much Cruz misunderstands Antifa. They aren't terrorists or even an organization. There's no hierarchy or roster or even a cohesive vision other than fucking shit up. They're about as much a gang as juggalos are. And yet, by labeling Antifa domestic terrorist, individuals who show up at protests could be prosecuted for the actions of anyone in the group. This is patently unconstitutional. At a congressional hearing, FBI Director Chris Ray told Cruz that, quote, the FBI doesn't investigate ideology, we investigate violent criminal activity. And if the FBI thinks a plan is government overreach, it is. Still, despite what Ted Cruz, Donald Trump, and the various hosts of the Fox News Network will tell you, Antifa is not a threat to the republic. They aren't even targeting groups with actual power, choosing to role-play with the Proud Boys instead. They aren't even a real threat to Portland unless you happen to manage a Starbucks downtown. What they are is a distraction, one that plays right into Trump's hands. But don't take my word for it. Listen to Noam Chomsky, who called Antifa, quote, a welcome gift to the far right and the repressive forces of the state. This is not, of course, to say that people shouldn't demonstrate or that counter-protests are useless. That's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, public rallies and marches can be a powerful indictment against those in power. Just look at Hong Kong right now, where hundreds of thousands of people are marching against the state at actual risk to themselves. But Portland is not Hong Kong. And if Antifa really wanted to make a difference, perhaps they could start by registering people to vote. That's all for The Gist, which is produced by Daniel Schrader and Pierre Benamy. Mike will be back next week unless he decides to take his winnings from the Slate Fantasy Pickball League and buy Greenland himself. But until then, oomperoo, deeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>